Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined by Al Kingsley, who is the CEO of Net Support. He's written a new book called My Secret EdTech Diary. We're going to be talking about all of that. But before we get to any of that, Al, I just wanted to welcome you to the show. Welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you. And lovely to be here. Looking forward to talking all things EdTech with you. Absolutely. And as I was doing my research, I saw you're a prolific podcast guest and host. So if folks are enjoying what you're hearing from Al, there's plenty of other places where he, he does these types of appearances. And you've also been in, in, in a bit of a media blitz around the launch of your book, which we'll get into in, in a minute. But before we do that, as a rite of initiation for our guests, we like to ask for their origin story. Can you share with us who you are and what got you to this point in your professional life? I'm happy to. I will try and keep it reasonably succinct for fear of anybody drifting off. I'm always referred to myself as, as a man of two hats. And that's really that my career has been split really quite nicely down the middle between my commercial life and my life in education. I went through a pathway of working initially in the finance and banking sector. Not particularly exciting, but I cut my teeth and learned my skills there, which are very nicely transferable to the business world. And then I've been working in education and technology, developing software products, being with NetSupport now for the best part of 30 years. I'm group CEO across our international offices. Uh, and NetSupport has built its reputation on developing all sorts of technology solutions for education, mm -hmm. instructional tech, keeping kids safe, and so on. Mm -hmm. In parallel to that, I'm chair of two multi-academy trusts in the UK, similar to dis school districts, clusters of schools that I have responsibility for. I'm also chair of an academy for young people who require alternative provision, struggle in mainstream education. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also chair the regional board for children with special educational needs, so physical disabilities and learning. Mm -hmm. So I'm very much entrenched in the two halves. And of course, they are very um, useful alignment because one of the strands that hopefully we can unpick a bit further as we go on the conversation is about that co-production, actually working in alliance between developing and creating solutions and actually understanding the landscape at any given time and how the products need to adapt. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. So that's a nice broad perspective. And as I was mentioning, that is something that as a trend spotting show, we try to keep our eyes open across the broader universe, because lots of times you can make connections in surprising ways. There's the famous uh, William Gibson quote, the future is here now. It's just not very evenly distributed. If you keep your eyes open, you can spot things. And it sounds as though you've been playing with your head up paying attention over this 30-year career in education and educational technology. And that's culminating now in you sharing some of that perspective in your new book. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? I certainly can. So yeah, my secret EdTech diary. Obviously, the, the cover is going to be out of date quite quickly because it's not much of a secret now. It really, we reached the point. I, I always talk about the last 18 months, two years as being a real amplifier and catalyst for change in the EdTech space. And, and before that, there's often been many stakeholders promoting and advocating the effective use of educational technology, but it's been a little bit of a groundhog day. There's been different surges where there's been pockets of funding where we've seen adoption, but it's not really been sustained and embedded. Uh, and so having managed to find my way successfully through 30 years at working in this, I wanted to create a book that did a number of things. I think the first thing was to bring the different perspectives together. Now, there's lots of great documentation and articles out there that we can all find through our browsers, but actually bringing things into a common place. And, and I wanted to do is try and pull them together. So the first part for me really was reflecting on where we've come from 
and, and there are trends right from the 1920s in terms of how educational technology was first introduced, some of the success stories and perhaps the things that become more memorable by nature of the media, the, the, the failures along the way that naturally result in a degree of um, skepticism about the, the impact and benefit of some solutions. But then we've got this kind of window of the last two years where we've had this fast track to, to trying new things. And, and the, the pandemic has provided, in one regard, a positive in terms of a, an opportunity for educators to take risks. And by risks, I go out and try new things quickly that maybe would fill the gaps from some of the things they couldn't do in a face-to-face -face sense. But we also want to learn lessons from that. So the, the, the next part really building on that is, well, where does that go in the future? And rather than being just about that, common strand of education history and edtech where we go. I also wanted to bring in the, the dynamic of what it's like from a vendor's perspective, uh, partly because I get lots of educators who are looking to branch out and mm -hmm. they have their own idea and how do they turn that into a product? So they want those kind of shortcuts and tips. Yeah. And the second is if you understand how vendors go about creating products and ecosystems, it puts you in a stronger position as a teacher in a school or a district lead to actually understand what the requirements are from a vendor's perspective and also what to look for in terms of the, the pros and cons that yeah, yeah. selecting and choosing the right tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's quite a bit. It sounds relevant. It sounds zeitgeisty, as I like to say on the show. It does seem like you're trying to tap into the spirit of the times and it is a transformative moment. It's an opportunity. I would like to get a little bit of your perspective on how likely we are to lean into that opportunity and where you see us snapping back because I am seeing both of those themes out there in the world. There's a lot of pandemic fatigue where people just don't want to think about the new. Nope. And, then, and then there's also this awareness, I think the silver lining side of the equation where things are probably better because we learn digital. But what's your general uh, sense, spirit of the troops, spirit of the times in terms of where we're heading? I think that's very perspective in terms of thinking about where we take our trend forward. The first thing I often say is about the, you know, the reality check is no two schools are the same, no two districts are the same. So we can't always generalize in the broadest sense. What we can say is the, the number one lesson we've learned over the last couple of years is the biggest barrier to successful adoption of technology was professional development and training for staff to have confidence using the tools and confidence tends to feed in then to the resulting successful adoption and embedding of the technology and it's the embedding that's the key bit mm -hmm. so because we've tried new things and some things have worked and let's be honest some things haven't worked as well there is with that kind of exhaustion after the pandemic a, a natural persuasion to slip back into the way we used to do things mm -hmm. and i think it's incumbent on those of us that are talking about edtech and many of the practitioners and instructional leads in schools to recognize that actually we need to learn those lessons and where things have worked, we need to actually continue having those as part of our toolkit. Mm -hmm. Because we know like anything, but if you use something consistently, you maintain confidence. If you stop using it, that confidence and that skill set declines over time. Mm -hmm. um, and when we think about some of the challenges, the natural thought process is, well, we probably won't be doing much remote learning and hopefully in the next few months. So why do we need those tools? But those same tools can be used both in a classroom setting and for greater collaboration, for support, for uh, resources and access to content outside yeah. of lessons to support homeworking. We've developed lots of extra tools that can support better communication. And I don't like to use the word catch up because I think any term you label with a child that's negative is not helpful. Mm -hmm. But I think there's definitely a move and maybe we can talk about it in terms of the trending in the future about how technology can support personalized learning. And that's not to replace the teacher at the front of class, because nothing can replace that human interaction. 
yeah. but working in parallel to fine tune and stretch for different children's needs. I think that's really key. Uh, and the one thing that I've seen is it's very easy to be prescriptive and talk about a standardized plan for all children to how to bridge that gap of lost learning. Mm -hmm. But actually, that never levels up the playing field. It's going to be a different amounts for different learners on different aspects. So it needs to be that very much personalized focus. Yeah, yeah. And it's a combination of can the technology do the personalization or can it be a blend of the educator who can tweak and adjust based on the actual human connection that they have. I will want to get some of your takes on artificial intelligence and our future robot overlords in a second. But before we go there, the other thing that I wanted to get your take on was cybersecurity and the safety of schools and the safety of yeah. online technology. Massive trend, both in the workforce and also in the school space. It's an area of personal interest. One of the solutions we develop is, is aligned around that area of providing that online safety. Mm -hmm. But actually, when we think about data and privacy and safety, there's a number of strands there. So so I alluded to one is that data security. Uh, and, and if you think of that simple question of signing up to all these different applications to deliver curriculum content, understanding that where that student data and that personal information is being shared and making sure there's the right policies in place to control who has access to the data, how long it's stored, when it's actually removed. Just to jump in, this is where people like acronyms or initialisms. This is where PII comes into play, right? Because people talk lots of times about, is there PII? which is the more sensitive personal data. I always like to try to help my audience sound smarter at a cocktail party. It sounds like cocktail parties are probably coming back. So I just wanted to pause. Uh, no, you're, you're really good to make that point because we, we're talking about that personal data and that, that's one strand. Then we've got the strand about keeping our young people safe online. So the more we provide fantastic devices, tools and resources to learn online, but to develop the skills to go away and research online and find information the greater the potential risk is that young people will either intentionally or unintentionally encounter content that may or may not be suitable for them. Yep. So providing the tools that can actually keep them safe, protect them, and where appropriate, make trusted adults aware that a child may be searching for content that could place them at harm or perhaps have issues in terms of their social emotional health where they need mm -hmm. support and intervention mm -hmm. is really key but the third one that sits alongside that which is something i'm really passionate about is actually the most effective tool is good embedded digital citizenship actually teaching young people to understand the risks the challenges how to think and validate and question information that they see mm -hmm. as well as the usual thing about developing the right social skills for conduct online and we often refer to it as that online disinhibition, the way that regrettably we see adults not always modeling particularly well, but that filter that says the way I speak to you via a chat room is completely different to how I might have a dialogue with you face to face mm -hmm. and understanding that respect, your digital footprint, the longevity and the implications of that. So there's a number of strands that wrap around, but I'm very much conscious if we think about SEPA in the US or um, we have a similar legislation in the UK, it's really about making sure as an obligation of a school or district that we've got tools in place to keep our children safe and we're aware when there are issues. Yeah, yeah, and then to extend that, the role of the family is another massive transformation that's happened. How connected the home is to the learning experience. I think we've all felt it in a much more profound way. Well, I think there's a number of strands. I, I've argued for many years that the role of, of educators has broadened and broadened in terms of the, the, the provision and support it provides outside of the the school building. Mm -hmm. Those schools that have been the most effective over the last 18 months, particularly, 
recognize that as part of their delivery to an online and a blended model, one of the key measures of success would be parental engagement. And so that started with providing the right information to inform parents, provide them with the opportunity to be confident and familiar with the tools that the child was using as part of their learning journey, mm -hmm. providing them with best practice and guidance in terms of the things that they can do to help support their keeping their children safe. And based on age group, that might just be a case of keeping the door open when they're online to how they can protect them and, and give them the right kind of education at home. Yeah. Of course, parents engaging in learning always has a positive impact. And, and I suppose the last one, coming back to that data and privacy, is transparency, making sure the schools are clear about what tools they use, what data is stored and where it is, so that that's the way that you ensure you get parental buy-in and engagement, which is the way it should be. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. How about the future of work and the way the world is changing in that respect, where a lot of us are working now with technology in new ways, with artificial intelligence, any perspective there on how the jobs of the future are changing and how education needs to be responsive to those changes? You're talking about digital citizenship as one element of this, but yeah. are there other uh, components to either the educational ecosystem or the curriculum itself that you think needs to evolve in this changing world? Goodness, there's so many strands there. One that's a particular thing I think which is really important, and I'm sure many will nod their heads and agree, and, and many will already be recognizing and, and implementing it themselves. I think there's always been over the last few decades a bit of a yin and a yang pushback between are we teaching our children knowledge or are we teaching them skills and mm -hmm. finding that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And clearly with part of this conversation and debate about the digital skills acquisition and the way that we've been delivering teaching and learning and how young people consume information. But digital skills clearly is a key component of empowering our young people to be independent learners yeah. and have the skills that are transferable to the workplace. We've only got to see what's happened over the last couple of years to see that our definition of the typical workplace has probably shifted depending on the profession and the way that you work. Mm -hmm. Workplaces are probably going to be less geographically restricted in some cases. Uh, the tools are constantly adapting. A couple of years ago, we probably wouldn't be talking about Zoom and meeting teams in the way that we do in every single uh, meeting and conversation at the moment. And so we want to make sure that the tools that our young people and the skills they're developing in school are transferable to the workplace. Now, the nice thing is there's an opportunity here. I'm always being an advocate and a voice for, for youngsters and their career pathways. Sometimes, and this comes down to strength of leadership, those at the, the forefront of businesses, the, the, the owners and CEOs and, and leaders of businesses aren't always the best people to make the decisions about the right technology to utilize within our organization. And that's the same, frankly, within schools as well. Sometimes I don't wish to generalize too much because, of course, there are many exceptions to the rules. But what we're actually seeing is we have a workforce that if we give them the right resources and training in schools now, actually have the potential to add greater value to the commercial workplace by arriving with digital skills that perhaps some of their you know, longer standing employees wouldn't have the same exposure to. Mm -hmm. So it's then incumbent on organizations to say, are you going to continue manufacturing, selling, creating, whatever it is you do using a tried and tested method? Or are you willing to look and say there are new technologies, there's new ways that we can adapt and innovate as a business, and we're going to embrace the opportunity by looking at those tools to change the way that we do things. Yeah. And it's either, do you go out to look for a tool that fits the way you work, or are you happy to go and look at solutions and be willing to adapt the way you work to leverage the most benefit from it? Mm -hmm. Now, the latter is the way to engage and get greater innovation over a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping 
if we can get that right skills adoption, and that's been one of the positives, we're trying to find positives over the last 18 months, then that sets young people up to be more confident in the tools that they're going to encounter within the workplace. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, robots. <laughs> I, we haven't actually gotten to robots. You're looking ahead as you're synthesizing all this stuff. Where do you see us headed? Where? What are some areas of concern? Folks like dy dystopias. What do we need yeah. to be care careful about? And then obviously, I always like to finish more on a, on a hopeful trajectory. Where do you see some hope? But any perspective on how technology interacts with humanity and where the risks and the opportunities are? Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. And I don't profess that my uh, my diary goes as far forward as a, a crystal ball gazing for the next 50 or 100 years. What I can say is, for all of those involved within the technology sector, there's a very clear separation. There are things that computers are really good at, and there are things that human beings are really good at. And yes, there's a Venn diagram with a bit of an overlap. But I often hear people asking the question, will technology replace the teacher? And my perspective is and always has been, the answer is no. What it can do is by using technology and the advent of AI being adopted into solutions and, and personalized learning is a great way of a young person being presented with questions and based on their answers, the system learns how to stretch and challenge and develop their knowledge. Mm -hmm. In doing that, it can free up time. And that time allows the teacher, the human, to do the things that teachers do amazingly, which is that interaction, human to human, teaching, inspiring, engaging, identifying and nurturing where children need support. And those are all things that the human element will always trump the computer on. Yeah. So we've got the potential that AI and other technologies can really develop and enhance as that, that extra strand. Where I think if we go further forward and we think about accessibility and the use of technology, it is that friend that we have often sitting in a speaker on, within our sitting rooms at home or in our cars. And if I say it, I'll probably have all the devices in my room go off, whether it's the Alexa or Siri, he's trying to be nice and quiet. But actually, there is the potential for the keyboard to become less prevalent and the voice to become more dominant. Mm -hmm. And if we use the voice as that method of engagement, not only does it make it more accessible and potentially at an earlier age, because we tend to develop lingual skills quicker than we do our typing and written skills, yeah. but we also have the potential to use the information we gather to understand and track the levels of engagement of young learners and when they're working on things. And again, build that kind of personalized learning. So there's huge opportunities I think it's more the business world where there's a threat to employment from technology than there is within the education space. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So we talked a little bit about a broader perspective. I'm always looking for inspiration in education from adjacent spaces. I frequently gravitate to entertainment, leisure, play, gaming, where new trends emerge that frequently then become adopted by educational practitioners. Where do you find your inspiration outside of education? Where do you see new trends emerging and where have you seen them jump into well, the educational lane? It's a really nice question. And there's loads of strands we could go down. One that resonates and some will pick up on is the graying of the boundary between the, it's not new, the emergence and growth of computer gaming for all ages and the role that gaming or gamification can play within education. When we think about different approaches to learning. And often people will talk about, my child spends hours on Minecraft or other solutions and I wish they were studying. But actually, if you think about younger children playing Minecraft, they're learning about all sorts of things from measurements and dimensions and space and managing resources. And then we move on to city building games where they're learning about currency and mm -hmm. potentially politics and how they do things. 
And actually, there's a really important role that we need to be clear that, you know, young people all learn in different ways. And actually, the right kinds of embedding those kind of games, but also gamification into our tools. So I'm thinking in a classroom setting, if I'm asking questions to the class, we can do things. We can make things more exciting for some of our learners. We can, who's the fastest to answer? Which team got the most points? Right, we're going we're gonna to bounce the question around the class for, for peer validation, and we're going to score points on those things. There's lots of different ways that we can start to build these things together. But I would certainly say, again, where it's appropriate, and it's really important to understand the context of, of games and how accessible they are to different age groups. But there is the potential that children can learn by playing far more than we perhaps traditionally think of in purely in terms of the, the early years classroom setting. Yeah. So I think that's an area where technology blends. And because we've seen these fantastic games that previously were the domain of our desktop, now available on a smartphone or a tablet, they're also more accessible. Yeah. And accessibility is the key one for me, is making all young people have access to some device that levels the playing field. Yeah, and which is a, a, another major trend that was accelerated to your point during the pandemic, where the awareness of those gaps became much more widely uh, available. Everyone suddenly realized you can't just say, we'll move this all online when there were genuine disparities in terms of who actually had the tools, the broadband, uh, the access. Absolutely. Where do you see the digital divide going? Was was this a shock to system that ultimately is benefiting folks? It's great that the narrative has been brought forward. It's not something that others haven't recognized pre the pandemic. I think what we saw was in many countries, particularly the developed countries, we saw an acceleration of availability of devices, but still not enough to cover families with multiple children in a household and that concurrent usage that they needed to do. Yeah. What we actually found was the bigger barrier was connectivity and where families were losing jobs and unfortunately data plans and costs of connectivity was a real barrier. And we need to level the playing field. Every young child needs to have a, a, an equal opportunity and start in life when they're accessing education. And so there's some lessons learned. One, unfortunately, can't be fixed by schools independently. It requires national and government intervention in terms of affordability and availability of connectivity aligned with a learning requirement. Mm -hmm. There's a lesson for vendors to learn about making technology where possible device agnostic so that it doesn't or shouldn't matter what brand of device or platform is in the home. Mm -hmm. Your technology ideally can deliver some kind of learning experience and engagement so that it can be accessed by the broadest possible um, cohort. And then I think we've also learned that um, much as we, you know, do throughout the day on our video calls and meetings, that actually some of the best content is stuff that we can either stream live synchronously, as we'd refer to, or we can actually record and make available as video exemplars that then avoids that concurrency issue. So I think we're learning in lots of different ways and also not forgetting the fact that in some occasions, certainly for our younger learners, there's nothing wrong with books and pens and papers. They work just as effectively. This isn't right. a case of automatically everything has to switch to digital. Mm -hmm. We kind of come back to that SAMA model. It's not a race to the top, this which for your listeners. It's a model that's about substitution, augmentation, modification, and redefinition, which simply says, do I take a book or do I turn it into a Google Doc or a Word Doc? And I can add to that by having links and references. And, and so I'm improving the learning potential or opportunity for experience for the child. Mm -hmm. But again, in some classrooms, just plain old people talking and resources is perfectly fine. Yeah. So I think we're also learning that bit about not everything is not change for change's sake. It's looking for the things that actually have had a genuine impact and benefit. And then how do we build on that? Yeah. Yeah. And then a, a, another trend we've talked a lot about uh, on this podcast is 
universal design for learning. So designing your learning assets in a way that is flexible so that different types of users have options in terms of how they want to engage coming out of the universal design movement in architecture. There's been a, a broader awakening around some of those trends. I'd love to get some of your perspective there as well. I think there's a lot of learning. And I think particularly if we think from a vendor perspective, I'm, I'm a great advocate of the, the term co-production where really rather than developing a product and pushing it to market and waiting for feedback from customers, that design and structure for a product is done in parallel with educators from the beginning. And part of that is understanding that it's not simply about there is some content and I'm going to deliver it, but it's exactly as you, as you refer to, it's about there are different ways to deliver content that will play to different strengths of learners. We want to make sure that it's accessible for all. So different ways to access the information that, that again, keeps that playing field level and recognizing that as we've seen in the last 18 months, the assumption that you create something, you deliver it to market and it remains fit for purpose indefinitely is simply not the case. It is a constant evolution of technology. You're constantly taking those checkpoints back to the customers, to the schools to make sure that things fit and align. And again, I think all these strands come back to the common theme, which is no two learners like no two schools are the same. You have to have flexibility in your design, in the way the content's actually accessed and the way that it's delivered to ensure it has best value. And one of the trends that I'm sure you will have picked up on over the last 18 months because of this approach of let's adopt new solutions is the, the equal pushback, which is we need to make sure we're selecting solutions that are research informed, mm -hmm. either the pedagogical evidence or the peer evidence or the case studies, but there needs to be the backing behind the shiny brochure and this solution will fix everything to really make sure that we're not buying solutions for the short term, but they're going to be embedded and have long-term impact and value for the school. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And this gives me a lot of stuff to chew on, hopefully our listeners as well. Particularly, it sounds like you're speaking to educators who might be curious about dipping their toes in the water or getting a little more serious about a career in educational technology, which is interesting because that really was my path. I began as a teacher, test prep teacher, and then that drew me into e-learning. What, what you're talking about in your book is speaking to me, and I think our listeners really would benefit from that perspective. As we're getting towards the, the tail end of the conversation hmm. here, Al, what have we not talked about that's in the book that you think folks might be interested in? Here's a funny one, and thank you for the opportunity just to share that. When we talk about EdTech, lots of people go, oh, exciting, but there's plenty more that go, oh, I'm not a techie, not my area of expertise, and, and lose interest quite quickly. And actually, the underlying trend throughout the book is to make EdTech accessible for all, to to provide the kind of the commentary in plain English, what we've learned before, what we've learned recently, what opportunities are there to present the lists of questions and things to be considering so that anybody, even if they consider themselves to be absolutely non-techie, can join the conversation, can be suitably informed and understand the implications of what the school or the district may be considering or be aware of things that they can go out and try. And I'm really keen that EdTech is not the realm of the geeks, the techies, or whatever anybody wants to refer to as, it is absolutely something that everybody within the education system needs to have confidence in. Mm -hmm. So within that, the book really resonates, I hope, and provides information irrespective of where you sit within that tech responsibility within a, within a school or district, and hopefully is absolutely number one. Plain English, says it as it is, doesn't try and use technical jargon to bamboozle or impress. It's very much about unpicking ed tech and looking through it, as I refer to in the widest possible lens. Yeah, it's interesting. It 
brings me immediately to Carol Dweck and growth mindset and uh, the imposter syndrome, <clears throat> where yeah. frequently if you think, oh, that's techie, I don't understand it. In some ways, you're doing yourself a disservice. And in some ways, you're falling prey to the technologists who are trying to hold on to the ball, where I do appreciate yeah. that you're trying to be more inclusive there, because frequently decision-making around technology needs more parties at the table. How about that? Any message to folks who are trying to develop a, a strategy now, and they're trying to understand yeah. where to go with uh, with digital transformation? It, it's something I speak about regularly, including at ISTE this year. Building a digital strategy starts by getting, as exactly as you say, those voices around the table. And of course, we'd expect the senior leadership teams, the, the heads of the schools, the leaders to be there. But we also want to hear the voices, whether it's from the, the IT management point of view, from those teachers on the ground, all different experiences of how technology is being used to think of it from accessibility for children who have special needs, from a data privacy and protection perspective. They all come to the, together to, to bring together that kind of core strand of what are we trying to achieve? And I always use the example that it, a digital strategy is a fluid beast. It's not about pricking a pan that says this time next year, we'll have all this done because the finance will probably dictate the speed of your journey, mm -hmm. but it sets you in a direction and as with all things, if you bring people along, if all people have a voice as part of shaping where your priorities are, and more importantly, not just your priorities, but how you're going to measure impact, rather than trying to do too many things too quickly, you focus on a few core things that will have impact, you embed it, you measure that impact, and then suddenly you have far more confident moving to the next stage and the next stage. Mm -hmm. And as we've learned, we can't predict a plan for five years because who knows what's next. So you constantly want to revisit the plan alongside what your own strategic ambitions are as a school and see how you can pull that through along the way you're focusing on that cpd so you're building teacher confidence and building the familiarity of those tools so you can get best value for them mm -hmm. and i think they all come together so it's absolutely key that if an edtech product or the conversation about edtech is too complicated to include everybody around the frankly it's a rubbish product because the number one skill of any solution and product is that it's got to be easy to use to understand and leverage maximum benefit from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, some wise words uh, from from Al Kingsley, the author of My Secret EdTech Diary. It's out wherever you get books. And also, if folks wanted to track you down, Al, where should they go to find you? Thank, thank you very much. They can find me on Twitter, alkingsley underscore edu, or at alkingsley.com. That's fantastic. So before we let you go, I always love to conclude with what else out there in the world around you is capturing your imagination today? So is there anything new and emerging, some hot tips, some cool tricks, something we haven't talked about that folks could walk away from this conversation uh, with? Wow, that's put me on the spot. My first response would be uh, the European Soccer Championships, but I suspect that might not be quite so appealing to your audience in terms of things catching my attention. I'll tell you what is catching my attention, and it's long been talked about, but actually in recent um, months is becoming much more prevalent, is the awareness and the need in all organizations, particularly in business, but also in, in schools, given the pressures, that actually well-being is now considered a, a core building, a foundation as, as part of your operational plans. And I'm a strong advocate that it's very easy to be focused on productivity in the end game without realizing that actually the long-term performance is also built around having the right kind of well-being and support for, for your staff. Mm -hmm. We've seen the pressures on education leaders, but frankly, we've seen the pressures on in the workplace in all sectors over the last 18 months. And I think now, rather than thinking well-being is a tick in the box by sending an email once a quarter with some 
tips and best practice, actually the dialogue and, and, the, and has now become far more prevalent and been brought to the forefront. And I think it's a really positive point now that we're actually looking at the organization much more as the humans first in the conversation rather than the product. Great stuff. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Al Kingsley's the CEO at NetSupport. He's the author of My Secret EdTech Diary. I've benefited a lot from this conversation. Hopefully our listeners have as well. Al, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Been lovely. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, subscribe, write us a review, tell a friend. Have a lovely day. This is Trending in Education. Mm -hmm.